0: Hello and welcome to Frequently Asked Questions. We are joined today by Dr. Sanjeev Chopra. Doctor, how extensive a workup should be done for a patient with unexplained and persistent elevated AST and ALT? It's a very good question. The, the first thing to ponder is to ask yourself the question, is the elevated AST and ALT truly reflecting hepatic injury or disease? So it turns out that both AST and ALT can be elevated in non-hepatic disorders. So for example, muscle injury or muscle disease can lead to an elevated AST. We were taught that in medical school, but also elevated ALT. So the first step is to step back and say, does my patient really have liver disease or is there something else possibly masquerading as liver disease? If there's an elevated AST, ALT, phosphatase, bilirubin, albumin, protime, then we know we're dealing with hepatobiliary disease. But just elevated AST and ALT, I'd like to recommend for you to remember a simple mnemonic. It's MCAT, M-C-A-T. Could it be muscle injury or disease? Check a CPK. C is for celiac disease. Celiac disease can present as unexplained liver disease. A is adrenal insufficiency or Addison's disease. And T is thyroid. So thyroid disorders are very common and can present as myopathy and can lead to elevated AST and ALT coming from muscle. So MCAT, muscle, celiac, adrenal, thyroid. Check the following tests, CPK. Celiac, we test for TTG antibody Tissue transglutaminase antibody and serum IgA level. Adrenal, check for serum cortisol. Thyroid, check for TSH, thyroid-stimulating hormone. If those are all unrevealing or negative, then we have to say we're dealing with some kind of liver disorder, and it would necessitate an appropriate serological workup, imaging workup, and possibly even a liver biopsy. When is jaundice an emergency? So jaundice is an emergency in only three particular instances in adult medicine. And those are if you suspect the patient has cholangitis. They might have a common bile duct stone or a stricture, and now there's infection in the biliary tree. And this can lead to gram-negative sepsis or can lead to liver abscesses. So that's an emergency. We need to image the hepatobiliary tree, do blood cultures. If there's a stone, often using an endoscopic procedure, ERCP, doing a papillotomy and extracting the stone. You have to admit the patient and do all of that. The second situation is when the patient has fulminant hepatic failure. Fulminant hepatic failure, by definition, is severe acute liver disease with any level of hepatic encephalopathy. And if that's the case, then these patients should be referred to. They are then admitted to a tertiary care center where they do liver transplants. These patients get to be number one on the liver transplant list. We don't have a treatment for fulminant hepatic failure. There is no dialysis like we have for acute kidney failure. So fulminant hepatic failure, acute cholangitis, and the third condition in adults is massive Hemolysis. They're destroying red cells. That may turn out to be babesiosis, lichiosis, Lyme disease. We actually had a patient not too long ago who had all three conditions related to a tick bite, and he had massive hemolysis. That's an emergency. We need to figure out what's causing the hemolysis and treat it. It could be malaria falciparum, that is colloquially known in parts of the world where it's common is black water fever. Patients are febrile, and the black water refers to their very dark urine, which is related to hemoglobinuria, which is due to hemolysis. So acute cholangitis, fulminant hepatic failure, massive hemolysis are three emergencies in the setting of jaundice, where the patient has to be admitted promptly to a hospital and the appropriate workup and consultation with experts has to be done. In newborns, if they have severe unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia, that's the bilirubin that crosses the blood-brain barrier and it can stain the basal ganglia and other parts of the brain and can lead to kernicterus, and can lead to choreoathetosis, mental retardation, deafness, so that's an emergency. We see a rising unconjugated bilirubin in newborns. While we're making the diagnosis, is it Crigler-Najjar type one? What is the cause of this severe unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia? We, pit the, we put the patient under bilirubin lights. That leads to photodegradation of bilirubin, and then the bilirubin levels come down as the photodegraded products of bilirubin are excreted. And get out of the system. So only four situations, three in adults, acute cholangitis, fulminant hepatic failure, massive hemolysis, and in newborns, severe unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia. So a patient has mild unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia. What is the appropriate workup? So very likely uh, that comes to light uh, often during a physical examination for insurance purposes person is perfectly healthy, they get a a slew of lab tests, including a liver function profile, and lo and behold, the serum bilirubin total is mildly elevated, and it's predominantly unconjugated or indirect. So if the total fraction is two, and more than 75% is indirect, we call it indirect hyperbilirubinemia. In a perfectly healthy person, there are really two possibilities. Either the person has low-grade hemolysis. So in that case, the hematocrit will be low, there'll be an elevated LDH, there may be changes on peripheral smear, there may be an elevated retic count. If we excluded hemolysis, the most common cause, and actually a very common malady, is called Gilberts syndrome. So it's pronounced Gilberts, it's spelled G-I-L-B-E-R. T apostrophe is. And it may be present in three to 7% of adult males. So very common, comes to light if they're stressed, if they are fasting, if they are post-operative, not fe- being fed by mouth, or they go for the insurance exam and they have a slightly elevated total and predominantly indirect bilirubin level. And the insurance company will often say, you know, we don't want to insure you, or we want to give you high premiums, you've got some liver disease. That's when they get referred to me. Once I exclude overt hemolysis, the next step is very simple. It's called caloric deprivation. So we test a total bilirubin, indirect bilirubin. Let's say it's two, out of which 1.7 is indirect. Over the next 24 hours, the patient consumes less than 400 kilocalories. They come back, we repeat the blood test, and now the bilirubin has gone from 2 to 2.4, 2.6, and again, 75, 80, 90% is indirect. This actually proves that they have gel-based syndrome. We don't have to do a liver biopsy and measure the enzyme UDPGT uridyl diphosphate glucuronyl transferase, which is the enzyme responsible for conjugation of bilirubin and which is deficient in these patients with gilbase. That's a much more invasive test. We exclude hemolysis, do the caloric deprivation, repeat the bilirubin, and then I write them a letter or write a letter to the insurance company and say this patient has Gilbert's. They don't have any real liver disease. They have normal lifespan. In fact, this person may be better off than you and me because bilirubin is a very rich antioxidant. A common finding on ultrasound or other liver imaging studies is a small hepatic hemangioma. What is its significance and appropriate management? So a uh, hepatic hemangioma is a very common finding in autopsy studies, three to seven percent of individuals will turn out to have a hepatic hemangioma. If the patient undergoes an ultrasound or imaging study for other reasons, for example, they're looking at the kidney or they're looking at the pancreas, and lo and behold, when they look at the liver, they find a lesion, and it's very, very characteristic on ultrasound or CT of a hemangioma, really no workup is indicated. Uh, important thing to remember is the size. If it's more than 10 centimeters, we call it a giant hepatic hemangioma. And if this is superficial and present in the right lobe or the left lobe, I would simply caution these individuals not to partake in any kind of sports or activities where they could possibly traumatize the abdomen. So you know what, no mud wrestling and, and no physical fights and no bungee jumping. Otherwise, leave it alone. And uh, it's only on very rare occasions in kids, they can develop high output cardiac failure. Or in adults, they're extremely rare instances of steroid refractory polymyalgia rheumatica. So somebody has polymyalgia uh, rheumatica and they're not responding to steroids, we would image the liver. And if they have a hemangioma, removal of the hemangioma, takes care of that condition. Also, on very rare occasions, extremely rare case reports we're talking about, patients can have severe hypothyroidism. The hemangioma tissue makes an enzyme that inactivates thyroxine, so they can develop hypothyroidism. So hypothyroidism, refractory polymyalgia rheumatica, high output failure are what we see with hemangiomas on rare occasion. Also in kids, there's a rare syndrome called Kasabach-Merritt syndrome, where they have a low platelet count, and it's related to the hemangioma. So most of the time, I would say 99% of the time, uh, hemangioma is an incidental finding. It's benign if the radiologist is confident based on ultrasound or CT or MRI that this is a hemangioma, leave it alone. Wow, this is great information, doctor. Thank you so much for your time today.